Attention, California listeners. Due to some wacky laws, a small minority of California voters have forced a recall of Governor Gavin Newsom. If you're a registered voter, check your mail for your ballot, fill it out, and return it by September 14th. Make sure you vote no on question one, should Governor Newsom be recalled, and to leave question two blank. And please note, what we just said was not authorized by candidate or committee controlled by candidate. Visit votesaveamerica.com slash California to learn more. Hey, this is DeRay. And welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, Kai, and DR talking about all the news that you don't know from the past week. And then I sit down and talk to Cliff Albright, who is a co-founder and executive director of Black Voters Matter. In the midst of the voting rights threats circulating throughout the country, Black Voters Matter has been on the ground fighting back on these bills and urging corporations to take a stand against injustice. He's also the host of the new podcast, Black Power Revisited, and we sat down to talk about the accomplishments for voting progress so far in 2021 and how we maintain the momentum. Let's go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me at Diara Ballinger on Instagram and being silent on Twitter. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And I'm Dre at DRY on Twitter. So we were trying to figure out what exactly to talk about in terms of banter. So much happened this week, obviously. Abortion ban in Texas, super important to the culture. D-Nice and his club quarantines, which are Woo-woo. coming to a concert venue near you. Don't miss it. <laughs> And then also Naomi Osaka. So I, I, I'm going to be honest, I haven't been watching the U.S. Open closely. So, Kai, I feel like you had more of a handle on what, what's going on with Naomi and, and another potential break for her. I've watched a little bit of the Open and, you know, Naomi lost and she in her post-match press conference, which, you know, has been a source of problem for her over the last little while. It was really difficult. She cried a lot. Um, it felt like every time the the moderator was trying to shut it down, she kind of kept on talking. She had something she wanted to say. And it was painful, frankly, to watch this young lady talk about the fact that, you know, tennis is not giving her joy anymore, that when she wins, she doesn't even feel excited about it. She just feels relieved. And when she loses, she's super sad. And, you know, she talked about needing a break. And I think it's been really difficult to watch this whole thing unfold over the last few months. It's been both difficult and I think sort of a breakthrough in terms of the conversation that we're having about these elite athletes and the toll that it takes on their mental health. At some point I turned on the open last week and Coco Goff had just lost to Sloane Stevens. And when I turned on the TV, they were just following Coco as she left the stadium way back into the dressing room and stuff. And, you know, I just can't imagine you lose on the big stage. You are already feeling some kind of a way. And to just have a camera in your face the whole time or to have to do these post-match interviews where these people aren't treating you like a person, but treating you like, I don't know, a piece of property or whatever. And, you know, these young ladies and young men, I think, the same is true a lot. We've, we're hearing a lot of young men also talk about the toll that this is taking. It's difficult to watch these 20-something-year-olds or, you know, teens or whatever respond to all of this pressure. 
and I think it's opening up a conversation for sure about mental health. I think we're at a watershed moment where we got to do something different for these young people if we expect them to continue to compete at this level. You know, I, I saw Naomi on opening night. I was at the U.S. Open. It was incredible to watch her. It's been really interesting to see her and hear her talk through like, she's a champion, but she doesn't always feel like one. Even We're like, you know, best player in the world. She's got, I think she's won the most money out of any woman, like, ever almost. I think that is true, right? That's true. The way she has to deal with it and people's response to it. And, and what does it mean that you've won sort of everything you can win? And, like, the sport doesn't bring as much joy as it did before. And that, like, the pressure of staying at the top is actually hard. And what that means, and, you know, there's a generation of people who would say, suck it up and, like... You know, it is what it is. And there's a newer generation that's like, we should talk about this stuff, right? Like, you shouldn't suffer in excellence. You shouldn't suffer at all. They, like, you actually can be healthy and love this thing. You can be joyful and appreciate the art. Like, all of those things can be true. And it's actually been really powerful. And like you said, Kaya, the interviewer tried to cut her off when she was, like, saying that she no longer feels joy, essentially. And she kept going. She was like, I don't know when I'm going to play again. And it, it, again, it is refreshing to see somebody say, like, I know that what I'm feeling doesn't feel right to me. I don't have all the words, but I know that doesn't feel right. And I'm going to take time to figure that out as I think a model and a lesson for all of us. I think one of the things that is clear is just the authenticity and honesty um, that she demonstrates. And like this is hard, right? And this is now like front page news. Everything that she says is now going to get unpacked and deconstructed in all of these venues and critiqued. Um, and nevertheless, she boldly said, you know, I, I'm just not feeling this in the way that I was feeling it before. And I'm going to protect my health first, my mental health first, and take care of myself. And I think that that is something that is courageous. Um, and something that I'm hopeful can be an inspiration for more people in, in really high stakes professions, not just in sports, but, you know, across the spectrum. It is difficult right now. Like it's a pandemic. There's a lot of pressure in general for people. And then you, you think about what does it mean to carry all of that and then represent Japan in the Olympics like at the highest level, represent the United States in many venues. Like she's playing at the highest level possible with the highest level of scrutiny, more scrutiny than white male athletes ever have to deal with. Um, and she's going to protect her mental health and be courageous enough to say when enough is enough and that she's not, that this is just not something that she's feeling anymore. And I think that that is really, really amazing to see and to see a new generation um, not sort of like suck it up and not just sort of uh, take it on the chin and endure um, things that you shouldn't have to endure, but rather critique the profession, critique the way that the media has been critiquing her um, and push back on some of these dynamics that don't just impact her, but impact um, many other people in this profession that may not have come forward, that may not have had the platform to generate this kind of conversation. And so, um, so that's good to see. And I'll just say this is a, a theme that comes up again and again and again in my work with, with companies and brands. Companies now are trying to evolve their culture, both to be inclusive and equitable, but also to account for, you know, kind of new attitudes um, and ideologies from these young folks. And part of that is wanting a job with purpose. And so I think no matter tennis or tech or art, this generation in particular and thank goodness for them, <laughs> gratitude for them. They want to find purpose in their work. They want to have a reason to get out of bed to go to work. And I think for generations before, that wasn't necessarily the thing. It was like, you know, you go to work to put food on the table. Um, and I think that culture is really transforming. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. 
Speaking of transformation of cultures at work, my news this week is about what is being called the Great Reassessment of Work in America. Since the pandemic, we have seen tremendous shifts in what's happening in the world of work. In fact, resignations are the highest on record, up 13% over pre-pandemic levels. 4.9 million more people aren't working or aren't looking than was the case pre-pandemic. There's been a surge in retirements with 2 million more retirements than expected and a boost in entrepreneurship, lots of people starting new businesses. And what that means is while there are 10 million job openings in the United States right now, 8.4 million people are unemployed. And it is about a mismatch in terms of where the jobs are and where people want to work, can work. In fact, you hear a lot about companies struggling to find workers and unemployed people having trouble getting hired, yet and still, there are all of these job openings and all of these people who are unemployed. It turns out that the job openings are not in the same occupations or locations as where people worked pre-pandemic. So there's a huge mismatch between the industries with job openings and the unemployed people who used to work in those industries. In fact, hospitality and education and health services are facing particularly acute shortages. In fact, healthcare workers and educators quit their jobs at the highest rate on record since the Department of Labor has been keeping track of this. Ben Bernanke, who is the former Federal Reserve Chair, says, and I quote, we are reallocating where we want to work and how we want to work. People are trying to figure out their best options and where they want to be. And so the long story short is even though companies are raising pay, the average pay of rank and file workers is up 2.8% in the past five months alone, that's not enough because um, workers are shifting their ideas about what work they want to do and where they want to do it. And companies are beefing up automation, they are redoing their office setups, and they are rethinking supply chains. So what's happening right now in the wake of this pandemic is two ships passing in the night. The people who want to work and can work are passing right by the jobs that are being created. And this is one of, I think, the results of the pandemic that is just starting to be talked about in real detail. This pandemic has wrought a whole bunch of change for us across a lot of dimensions, um, but this great reassessment of work in America is huge, and I think we'll continue to see it play out, whether it is millennials asking for a different culture or service workers, um, restaurant workers saying, I'm just not into the long hours and the bad treatment and the you know, low pay um, to companies saying we're going to rejigger how we do everything. Um, there's a lot of upheaval in the labor world right now. And so this is one of the things that we need to keep our eyes on as yet another outcome of this global pandemic. So I brought it to the pod because I thought it's worth for people who haven't noticed yet or people who are, are not paying attention to the unemployment numbers, it looks crazy that 8.4 million people are unemployed when there are 10 million job openings in the U.S. Um, and so we need to figure out how we retool. Industries need to figure out how they attract people. We need to rethink what going to work looks like. And I think that is probably happening a little more quickly than 
anybody thought. So I brought it to the pod. Thanks for bringing this to the pod, Kaya. And this is not at all surprising, but it is definitely fascinating to see sort of the scale of sort of the mismatch between job openings and folks who are not currently employed. Um, And I think, you know, the pandemic has changed the calculus in terms of employment. Um, It has raised the costs of going to work, right? And you're not getting paid more to go to work. So you've actually taken a pay cut is what that means. So if you, especially as an educator, especially as a healthcare worker, like your risks of going to work are dramatically higher now than they were before the pandemic. And you're not getting paid more for it, right? So you actually took a pay cut. So I don't understand, it's not, it's not hard to understand why folks are not sort of seeking out these jobs anymore or are, are leaving many of these jobs. Um, and it's a sad commentary on how we as a nation have failed the folks on the front lines of the pandemic. Um, We have not dramatically increased educator pay, dramatically increased healthcare worker pay in order to offset those costs and those real risks that folks are incurring. In fact, we've made things even more difficult. We've required educators to come back to school. We have made it easier for parents to defy mask mandates and not get vaccinated and, uh, you know, put teachers in a situation and healthcare workers in a situation where they're dealing with a pandemic that is happening at a scale now that it shouldn't be happening given that we have widespread availability of vaccines um, and folks are just not taking them in in a lot of cases. So this burden is being shouldered by service workers, it's being shouldered by healthcare workers, it's being shouldered by educators who are not getting paid more, who are not getting appreciated, who are enduring tremendous psychological hardship, who are in many cases uh, having to be in environments where those risks that they're exposed to then might impact their family members. Um, So it's, it's a really difficult situation situation. And you know, in this time, you would hope that the government would step in, that employers would step in and figure out how to make these jobs doable for folks, how to make them desirable for folks, um, how to make them so the folks don't feel like they are taking on more and more and more for less. You know, this is a commentary not on the folks who are not employed, but more so a commentary on us as a society and how we have not really done justice by the folks who um, have done the most in this time. You know, the thing that I'm reminded of is I, I looked at a specific state and there are roughly 40,000 hospitality jobs unfilled across North Carolina. And I bring this up because it's just such a reminder that this is now the employee's market. It is not the employer's market where they get to like decide all the terms. Uh, Kaya, in preparation for this, I really, people are offering pet insurance as a perk of the job now. People are offering better dental and health, which I anticipated, but also covering mental health in ways they've never covered. Covering all types of things is like a perk. But I was talking to a friend recently in Baltimore who owns a new event space, and she's like, baby, we cannot servers, bartenders, She's like, they get to choose where they're working now because there's so few of them who will work right now or want to work. And like Sam said, there's no real incentive right now for pe- people can stay home and like at least you'll live, you know, like people are being fuzzy about being vaccinated. You might be at a, an event in a shady place and like, you know, actually you could take unemployment and live and like not have to deal with any of this. But it is interesting to look at the sheer scale, like Sam said, to look at what it means that it is an employee's market now where employees really can dictate the terms of engagement. And when you look at like restaurants and, you know, convention centers and stuff like that struggle to get workers, it's a reminder that when you pay people $8 an hour, they're like, I'm not working 15 hours at your random event for $8. I'm not doing it. 
and I'm interested to see what happens because there are a lot of businesses that y'all know, we all know, cannot survive without, like, you know, you just need the bodies. You need, like, the sheer people to do the work and won't be able to survive without it. So my news is from Fast Company, uh, and the title is 10,000 Women Die in Car Crashes Each Year Because of Bad Design. So this article wasn't necessarily surprising just given all that, that we know and we've talked about in the past, but I had not necessarily thought of this in the context of car safety. Um, so the National Highway Safety Transportation Association, which is the nation's safety rating agency for car crashes and, and car safety, um, they run a number of tests in order to make sure that cars are safe. One of the things that I did not know is that they require a frontal crash test, um, but only performed using a simulated male driver. There's no mandated test that simulates a female driver in the crash test. And that for tests in the passenger seat, the, they use a test dummy that represents a woman who is 4 foot 11 and 108 pounds, um, which, as you can guess, does not reflect the diversity of body types of people in general. Uh, and what that means in terms of the design of automobiles is that automobiles are designed to protect men more than they are to protect women. And you see the outcomes in terms of injuries and deaths in car crashes. Women are 72% more likely in the United States to be injured and 17% more likely to die in a car crash than men. And the design of those vehicles and the failure of the National Highway Safety Transportation Agency to test adequately for both male and female drivers' vehicles is responsible for that difference uh, and that higher risk to women in cars. Moreover, there are other factors as well that this article goes into that contribute to higher injury and death rates for women in vehicles, uh, including the size of the vehicles themselves. Um, so vehicles have kept getting larger and larger. The number one vehicle sold in the United States is the Ford F-Series, like the Ford F-150, um, which is a massive and extremely heavy car. In general, the larger the vehicle, the more likely um, that folks who are hit by that vehicle, whether you yourself are hit are in a vehicle or are a pedestrian, your risk is higher of being injured or killed. And women are more likely uh, to be injured or killed when they're hit by a larger vehicle. Um, so these two factors the article goes into, one, the failure of the safety apparatus to actually properly consider the differences between men and women in terms of body type, to be able to actually protect women um, in vehicles and just the large size of vehicles that Americans are buying day in and day out uh, contributes to over 10,000 deaths uh, a year in uh, traffic accidents of women. Um, so I wanted to bring this to the pod. This is sort of another uh, dimension of inequity that we see play out in injuries and deaths uh, on a huge scale each year um, and something that I hadn't thought of and certainly isn't limited to you know, vehicle deaths. I'll just say, Sam, I don't know if I'm more offended that I'm more likely to die in a car or that I live in a country where the top selling car is the F-150. It's just <laughs> kind of a toss up to me. Am I in the right place? Am I in the right place on the earth? Not so sure. <laughs> uh, one of the things that was particularly offensive is that regulators have known for 40 years that this is a problem and still haven't done anything about it. And when they tried to do something about it back in the early 80s, the Reagan administration came in and cut the budget. And of course, the thing that they cut was the female crash test dummy. Like, But other countries have figured it out and have different 
types of crash test dummies. And I guess because this is important to them and they pay attention to it. And yeah, the offensive thing, Diara, is we live in a country that continues to deprioritize women across every single dimension. The thing that this reminded me of is also clinical trials. So you, we know that black people are underrepresented in clinical trials. What I didn't know, and I realized this in preparation for this, there's a really good article in STAT, statnews.com, called Clinical Trials Need to Include More Black and Other Minority Participants. Here's how. So they talk about, you know, we knew that black people are underrepresented in trials. What I didn't think about was the underrepresentation of clinical staff in the trials. So one of the points that the author makes is not only do you need to have black people in the trials, but you need to make sure that they stay, right? And black people drop out of clinical trials at a higher rate than their peers by race. Blew my mind. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. My news is about brilliant, beautiful, extraordinary black surfers. I was looking at my colleagues, friends, news today, and I was like, ooh, Lord, I need something that's going to bring me up. So I want y'all to check out this piece. It's in the New York Times, um, but it's about black surfers reclaiming their place on the waves. And it's like very interactive. So it has all these really beautiful and arresting like visuals. So please, please, please go check it out. And it kind of sets the stage a year ago talking about how some black surfers got together to do what they call a paddle out. And so they do a paddle out basically to honor, honor the dead. And this particular paddle out was in the aftermath of George Floyd being murdered and so many other lives lost. I had no idea that this happened. It happened in Santa Monica, but it's so beautiful. And I think, you know, the symbolism behind it is just so incredible because there really is something so liberating to black people being in the water. And this article goes into it as well. Just, you know, how for years and years, because of segregation, because of discrimination, black folks weren't allowed to do a whole lot of things, including going to beaches, including going to public pools. And the story really is about how these black surfers and how there's a history and a legacy of black surfers that have been reclaiming the water. And although surfing, you know, kind of it was started in Polynesia, there's also this rich West African history of being on the waves, being in the water. And so I just thought this was so beautiful because I think, you know, with so many things, it's on us too as black folks. We're like, oh, that's white people stuff, hiking, surfing, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not. It's not. And so I think particularly in a time where mental health is so important, feeling liberation however you best can. And I think sometimes that that comes in the form of being in nature. You know, I think it's important for us to to be in water, to be in greenery, to be, you know, in spaces and places where we can breathe and feel free. So I just thought this article was just so miraculous and talking about the history of black surfers, but also just black folks relationship to water. Um, so just wanted to bring it to the pod because I thought it was so beautiful. And, you know, we should all go surfing, y'all. This was inspiring to me because one of the things that I love about black folks is we do everything, right? People might not see us. People might not know that we do everything, but we do everything. And this was a lovely reminder of yet another space where people don't expect to see us, but where we are. And I was particularly moved by the fact that while surfing looks like a very individual sport, right? It's just you and your board in a wave that these black surfers have found community, especially in the wake of all of the racism that they've faced in surfing and in the world. 
And, you know, that's who we are. That's what we do. We, we do it all and we do it all together. And so this was just a reminder of that. It also reminded me that, like, there's history that we're not taught um, about the places and the spaces that we've been in. This ain't new to us, right? Like, it is historical for us, and people have been doing this for decades. It is just a reminder of who we are, and I, I thank you for bringing it to the Padiara because, you know, I'm an East Coaster. We don't have a whole lot of black surfers from Mount Vernon, New York. <laughs> But that don't mean they can't be one sometime soon or from whatever other little black enclave that you come from. Our folks can do anything. And so I hope it serves as I mean, the the pictures are beautiful. And so, you know, I could imagine it, you know, being a little bit younger and being inspired to get out there and get on a board because the freedom and the abandon looks pretty amazing out there. So thanks for bringing it. Yeah, Diara, this article was dope. And also like a reminder of things that like we didn't know that we could do, right? Like I think like when I see surfing, there are many different barriers that I sort of see, right? One is it's extremely expensive. Like a surfboard is not cheap. Like being able to surf is not something that is necessarily easy. You have to have access to the beach. You have to be able to go out there and, and pay for that board, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's sort of the racism that, that folks are encountering, that black folks are encountering um, who are surfers that, that I didn't even, mm-hmm. I, you know, obviously that exists. But last year was sort of the, the first time that I had heard it specific to the surfing community where there was an incident in Manhattan Beach, California, with uh, where black surfers were yelled at and racial slurs were hurled their way. And, uh, and it was terrible from white folks. And, you know, the caucasity of this because... You know, as you mentioned, Diara, like surfing is certainly not something that was invented by white people. That we know for sure. That we know for that sure. That we know as a fact. And yet you have a situation where black surfers are having to deal with white people saying, like, these are our waves. Like, waves. nobody mm-hmm. owns the waves, and certainly y'all didn't invent surfing. We shouldn't have to do that just to be free on the waves and be out in nature and have that experience. Um, And it's sad that that is the case, but it's also inspiring to see surfers um, come together, build community in spite of all of that, uh, and demonstrate that, yes, we do have a right to be here. Yes, we have a history and a tradition of being here, and we'll continue to be here, regardless of the caucasity that y'all demonstrate. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's cool to see that happening, and it's cool to see that visually represented so beautifully Mm -hmm. in this article. Let me read the quote that stood out to me. The quote was, the vast majority of us are descended from African people who were coastal, ocean-dwelling people, and yet most of us have been disconnected from that aspect that was a crucial part of our ancestors' identities, said Natalie Hubbard, a surgeon and surfer who is part of the La Rubea Collective, which encourages surfing and water safety among underserved youth in the Rockaways in New York. I think there's a power to, she continues, as a person with African ancestry connecting with the ocean because you're also connecting with the part of your heritage. And it just reminded me the way that the storytelling about ourselves is revisionist history that like the most popular trope is that we don't know how to swim, that we're afraid of the water, that the water is like, you know, that that is like the popular meme is that black people don't know how to swim. But what is true is that we were disconnected from a history of our relationship with the water because of the slave trade. That was the revelation I had here. I'm like, wow. Like it was just a reminder that the stories that we had been told about each other and that sometimes we participate in replicating are a revisionist white supremacist history that is not rooted in reality. And when I read that, I'm like, ma'am, yes, yes, yes. We were ocean people before all of this. (laughs) And that spoke to me. 
So my news is about um, about the history of adolescence, and it is uh, based on an article called Fear of the Black Child. It starts with the story of a black kid who gets accused of throwing a Molotov cocktail. The response is wild. You know, he gets uh, sent to a juvenile detention center, all this stuff. So the black boy was actually not doing a Molotov cocktail. He was just throwing stuff, being a child. This white kid was actually concocting a Molotov cocktail. His consequence is that they rearrange his class schedule so that he can be in chemistry. And that leads her down this path of like understanding the difference between the way that black kids and white kids are treated by the system and like the history of it. So what stuck out to me is like, I honestly had no clue that adolescence was like a made up thing. Like I just didn't know that like, it used to be like children and adults. And then like in the 1950s, 1960s was like this moment where people created this idea of adolescence. Like the teenage years were like their own sort of moment and the adolescence was invented by white middle-class parents to give their children an advantage in the changing Western world. That all of a sudden there were programs and there was this whole ecosystem that started to arise around that moment. So it was uh, around mandatory school attendance laws, but also child labor laws were put in place. It was around that time that there was a whole juvenile system that just dealt with um, delinquent young people. It was an effort to allow the states to impose middle-class values on young people that further separated adolescents from children and adults. So there were now three categories. There were kids, there were adolescents, and then there were adults. And she goes, so she paints that picture, but she also does a really good job of saying that even in this new category, the rub is, is that black adolescents get treated so differently than everybody else. So create a new category that is specifically just for white people, essentially. And then you get this moment where white kids get to experiment and white adolescents get to do all these things. When black adolescents do those same things, they are penalized at a far greater rate. So she talks about, you know, one one thing that stuck out to me is that she writes that despite years of evidence that white youth use drugs at the same rate as black young people, uh, 19% of all drug cases referred to youth juvenile courts in 2018 involved black youth, right? So like she highlights a lot of those disparities, but I th- what stuck to me was I had never even thought about the idea of adolescence as like a political category that was created for a specific reason, blew my mind. And that in that category, that black young people fare worse than everybody else, that did not blow my mind. That was par for the course, insert the podcast. But I was really fascinated by the idea of the the invention of adolescence and what that has meant for our kids. This sort of reminded me of the research literature that shows that like white people are all about being progressive and programs that are you know, all about social welfare and redistributing resources when they perceive the people to receive those benefits to be white. But as soon as they perceive black people to participate in any of that, they cut it off. And I think what we see here is like the creation of adolescence, this creation of this idea that there shouldn't be child labor, right? Like that's not a bad thing. Like you shouldn't have to work when you're like 13, 14 in a sweatshop. You should be able to go to school and like go off to college and experiment, yada, yada, learn about the world. Yeah, I'm not opposed to that idea, but it is an exclusionary idea when you look at the fact that as black people are participating in those things, they're getting pushed out. They're getting charged as adults for things that other kids are doing and not even getting charged at all. So, like, it is a a reminder of 
you know, this double standard um, that exists in, in every dimension, but is especially present, I think, when we think about the history of how these things came about, when we think about the idea that adolescence was just sort of created uh, and that black youth still to this day cannot fully participate in that concept um, without being arrested, without being disciplined, without being pushed into the juvenile justice system, without being uh, pushed down the prison pipeline. Um, and that like, we have to deconstruct the ways in which um, those benefits are not actually shared um, and make sure that they are, right? And make sure that we, like folks do, are, should have some, some version of adolescence, should be able to experiment, should be able to go off to school, should be able to be uh, in an environment where they're not doing child labor. Um, but again, that only happens when it is equitable. That only happens when we're able to share those benefits broadly, when it is not done in a discriminatory way, when folks are not excluded. Um, and so, you know, again, this is par for the course, but it's something that um, that we see every single day in the statistics that we see in uh, in the disparities within schools and we see outside of schools. Um, and you know ultimately that is a, a critique on on the society that we live in, on the structural racism that we're dealing with. Um, and hopefully, you know we can have an adolescence for everybody that actually is equitable, that is inclusive, and that folks can grow up in a comfortable environment um, in which they have resources. and if they don't, that the government can step in and provide those resources. And and are not being you know, criminalized for being a kid. This also reminds me of something that's super compelling. We've talked about it before, but DeRay was also in the other article you put in our chat this week from the Marshall Project, just in terms of how black infants died twice as more as white infants. And in 2019, almost 3,600 more black babies died before their first birthday. And so I think, and we also, there was a similar the statistic in this same space where black babies die more when there's a white doctor as opposed to a black doctor. So I think even way before our babies can walk, talk, and be kids, they're seen as less than right out the gate. It's ridiculous. So I think part of it is how do we get to a, a better society? How do we reconcile? How do we reckon? How do we... Like this racism thing, like are we just, how many more generations is this going to impact? A ton, we know, because we're dealing with a huge incarcerated population. We're dealing with people who are in poverty, generational poverty. But I just think at some point it is, you know, this racism business is just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I think from the very outset, determining people's lives and how can they live or not live. So I don't know. I think, it, and I think this is... I, settling in more and more for me as I think about having a family and as I think about having a baby and no matter how privileged I am and all my little degrees and credentials, socioeconomics doesn't matter when you're a black woman having a baby. It does not matter. You die just the same, potentially. So I think, yeah, policy, yes, government, institutions, breaking down systemic barriers, yada, 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 yada. But at some point, it's just got to be come down to the human being and how we see each other. But I know that's that's happy land. But that's where I went with this one. This article pissed me off because <laughs> it just reiterated all of the things that we know about the way we treat black children so, so differently than the way we treat white children. And then I was like, okay, Kai, you can't stay in angry space. And what are you doing about this? And, you know, I'm an educator and I spent a lot of time trying to think about how to provide a world-class education 
for a majority black school district. And one of the things that I say all the time is, you know, when wealthy white kids can't read, we don't stop them from their sports. We don't take them out of their arts classes or their violin lessons. We don't say they can't go on the family trip. We do all of those things and we get them help. But when little black kids can't read, we strip away all of their sports and extracurricular activities. We take away all of the electives, the physical education, the art and music, we don't let them go on trips. We don't. And we drill and kill and tell them that this is going to be determinant of their whole entire lives and whatnot. Meanwhile, you know, we're telling Becky and Brad, it's going to be okay. Even if you can't read now, it'll be fine. We'll get you there. It'll be fine. And I'm proud to say I've spent my life trying to rectify that in the way I approach education. In fact, we have to demand in spaces where kids are kids that we treat black children like children. And in fact, it's not just enough to make sure that our kids can read and write. It is, I say all the time, it's as important to develop their talents as it is to develop their test scores, that we have to give them opportunities to be joyful, to learn how to surf and ski and, you know, do archery and bowling and things that don't look regular. All of this is part of the childhood that we are willing to afford white kids so that they're able to be exposed and that they understand that anything is available to them in the world. And we systematically deny that for black kids. And that's what this article continued to point out for me. But it just reinforced my commitment to ensuring that black kids are black kids. I think one of the like most important things coming out of this pandemic is that black parents are finally um, agreeing that like their kids' well-being is important. It's not just about can you be twice as good, you know, are you academically prepared, but we're asking are our children happy? Are our children in a space where their social interactions are solid, where they're finding community, where they are doing the things that they enjoy? And I think that we have the potential for revolution in this country when black parents and black community members and the collective start to stand up for our kids and that we treat our kids like kids and we demand that other people treat our kids like kids. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. And here's my conversation with Cliff Albright, the co-founder and executive director of Black Voters Matter. Cliff, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm excited to talk to you about the work that you do around voting, around community engagement. But before we dive into the work specifically, can you talk to us about how you got here? Like, how did you get to organizing? How did you get to focusing on on voting and electoral politics in this way? Like, how did you get there? Well, there's really two or three different ways of answering that question. One is, how did I get involved in racial justice work, right? And that story really starts when I was a student um, at Cornell and uh, as an undergrad, got involved in activism, took a class from a professor who ultimately became my ideological mentor, Professor James Turner, took a class on racism in American society, and it just blew my mind. And it just opened me up to this whole different way of looking at the world and looking at some of the racial realities around me. And then from there, I got into campus activism and then, uh, you know, graduated and came out and started engaged in community activism. But I was from a perspective of, Community activism was important, but 
I wasn't into electoral organizing. In fact, I really felt that electoral organizing was problematic, that it was deepening our engagement in the system that fundamentally wasn't for us and was always been against us. So if anything, you could actually say I was anti-electoral organizing. But funny thing happened on the way to freedom. I met somebody who was from Alabama and wound up moving down to Selma, Alabama. Now, you can't be an organizer and be in Selma, Alabama and not engage somehow in electoral organizing and in doing so in the first election, I'll never forget. And I tell people all the time, this is when black voters matter was created in my mind. There was an election. I moved to Alabama in 1998 in the year 2000, there was a mayor's race in Alabama, Selma, Alabama. And the man who was mayor when I moved there was Joe T. Smilliman, who was the same person who was mayor on Bloody Sunday in 1965. Holy snap, really? Yes, yes, he was mayor for 37 years. The first campaign that I actually engaged in in terms of mobilizing voters was the campaign to get rid of him. And I'll never forget the slogan we used was, Joe gotta go. And, um, and sure enough, by the end of that night, Joe was gone. Um, there's actually a video circulating on the internet that we're, uh, some young folks were doing a documentary and they were actually following me and, and Latasha, my friend and co-founder, around. And there's a video clip of me confronting the city's attorney at one of the polling places because he was trying to tell us we couldn't stand a certain place, very similar to some of the voter suppression laws that we're fighting right now, right? But he would say that we couldn't stand certain places, and he had these two cops with them, and so I was going back and forth with them. I said, you know what? Joe's going to go, and when he go, you're going to be gone right behind him. <laughs> and so that night when, when we won, not just got rid of Joe Smillerman, but also got the city's first black mayor, people stopped their cars in the middle of the street and started dancing and crying and just screaming and hugging. It was like it was a big Super Bowl party in the middle of the city. And it was that moment that I realized the power that can lie in electoral organizing when done correctly. Well, that's a good how you got into the work story. (laughs) Right. What's the work you do now? So right now I'm co-founder and executive director of Black Voters Matter, um, which is a power-building organization. We tell people all the time we're not just a voting organization. We are a power-building organization trying to build power in black communities. And elections are, are one way of doing that, but it's not the only way. And so we go about doing this work by partnering uh, with local groups. And getting them a couple of things. One, getting them resources, because the name of our 501c4 organization is actually Black Voters Matter Fund. So we fund some of this work. We fund local groups in places, in communities, and in states that people often forget about or neglect or progressives have even given up on. Places like Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana and up until very recently, Georgia uh, and other places across the South. But there are groups that have been doing incredible work. We say all the time that, you know, there's no such thing as, as red states. There's only states that where our communities have been underappreciated and under-resourced. Uh, and so what part of what we want to do is be able to partner with groups and get them some of those concrete financial resources, but other resources as well, like tools, technology, ability to send text messaging and Facebook and social media and other, other technology. And then sometimes just strategy, just coming in and, and being able to offer some of the lessons that we've developed over our collective 40 to 50 years of, of community organizing and just letting folks know in some of these communities, oftentimes rural communities, that the things that they're trying to do and that they're dreaming and scheming, that they're not crazy, right? And it's things that can happen 
and that we're going to play some part in, in helping to make it happen. So that's the kind of work that we do, and we partner with groups that range from anything from a, a NAACP chapter to a, a Black Lives Matter chapter to a church group to a youth group to a cultural organization. And sometimes they organize around a range of issues, but as long as they love black folks and have authentic relationships in their communities, then we're there for them. As an organizer, I've heard people use phrases like a power-building organization, but that's not the language that I grew up with. And it's certainly not the language that, you know, when I meet some people who are new to this work or who don't identify as organizers and activists, like, that's not the language they use. How would you explain, like, what is a power-building organization? Like, what does that mean? First and foremost, you know, you start with the definition of power, right? It's most fundamentally the ability to get stuff done. I happen to be a Soros fellow, and so I'm engaging in some research around like some concepts I have about like what power looks like and how you measure it. How do you know that you're making progress, right? And, and some of that is based on like on actual science, like what is power scientifically and how do we translate that to, to social dynamics. But most fundamentally, it's the ability to get stuff done, right? Or, or as I think it was Malcolm, or maybe it was Martin who, who once said, it's the ability to, to go to a corporation, you know, in terms of labor and power, to go to a corporation that wants to say no and force them to say yes, but it's the ability to get stuff done, to be able to control um, aspects of your lives. And so what we recognize is that the first step towards that oftentimes is getting folks just to be comfortable with the concept of power, right? Getting folks to be comfortable saying power and don't mess around and get them comfortable saying black power, right? <laughs> I actually have a podcast myself called Black Power Revisited because part of what we're trying to do is get folks to believe that we deserve power, that power is something that we, we need to have. As King said, that power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, that it's not a dirty word, and it's something that we actually have, and we just need to build more of. And sometimes if we could just get folks comfortable with that basic concept, that you are loved and that you have power and you need and deserve more power, oftentimes that's half the battle. Sometimes that's a difficult task because we've been trained for so long to view power as a dirty word because we've seen the way power can be used when it's used absent of love, when it's used recklessly and abusively, right? We've seen the kind of power that has a man put his knee on somebody's neck for over nine minutes, right? We've seen abusive power. And so sometimes we're like, Ooh, I don't, you know, we shouldn't talk about that. There's no good way to use power. We say, no, nah, that's not true. We, we just got to root our power in something different than what the other folks have rooted it in. So that's the first step that we take is just getting folks comfortable with even talking about the word and talking about the concept and knowing that we deserve it and then knowing that we've already got some and we need to tap into what we got in order to build some more. I'm always interested to, you know, you've been doing this work. This last election cycle was such a wild cycle for everybody, right? Like it was, you know, thank God we, Trump got out of there, but you're in a place where the Senate races really mattered for the whole country, not just for the region, not just for the state. What did you learn over the last year? More than a learning of the lessons, it's been an affirmation of the lessons, right? And so, like, we were just talking about power. Well, one of our theories of change that we've used in, in Georgia and really in all the states where we do our work is that we can't just get focused on trying to build power and mobilize voters just in the urban areas, right? You can't flip Georgia just by focusing on Metro Atlanta, right? I ain't got nothing against Metro Atlanta. I live in Metro Atlanta. But it takes more than Metro Atlanta to change Georgia. And so, you know, we, we went about from the time we started doing our work here a couple of years ago, you know, really focusing on 
southwest Georgia, the rural areas, South Georgia, the mid-sized cities that often get overlooked, right? Even though they're cities, like people don't really put a whole lot of resources in places like Columbus, Georgia, or Savannah, Georgia, or Valdosta, Georgia, or Augusta, Georgia, or Macon, Georgia, right? And so part of what was affirmed is that, you know, when we prioritize all of the pockets where we exist, right, including smaller cities, rural areas, right, when we prioritize all those places and build relationships, and relationships that don't even just center on the elections, that center on trying to build the capacity of local groups that are trying to do good things 365 days out of the year. When we go about that type of approach in terms of when we do the work and where we do the work, you can wind up shocking the world. You know, you can wind up um, doing something that hadn't been done since 1992 or whenever. So, you know, it just reaffirmed that theory of change that we had. And even the other lesson that we take, which, again, isn't so much a new lesson, but it was an affirmation, is just how damn remarkable we are as a people that we came through all that we came through in 2020. We came through COVID. We came through the police violence. We came through all the voter suppression, not just the voter suppression of 2020, but the voter suppression of 2018 when we saw them steal an election. And a lot of people say, oh, my God, black folks will never come back out in 2020 because we came out in historic numbers in 2018 and then they stole election. There's no way you're going to be able to mobilize black folks to come back out in 2020. But guess what? That's exactly what we did. That's exactly what black folks did. And so, you know, again, that's not a new lesson. That's just an affirmation of just how remarkable we are and how much we've been able to overcome. Tell me about the bus, uh, the, the blackest bus in America. Did I get that right? Yes, the blackest bus in America. How did I leave that out? Yeah, so part of that support that we provide to folks is that every now and then we hop on the blackest bus in America and we go around and we drive around these states and we go to these counties that folks don't often go to. We were just in rural Texas driving through sundown towns in East Texas, right? But those are the kinds of places that we go to, places that have never seen a big old black bus. And we call it the blackest bus in America. It's not just because the color is actually black, but it's because everything it stands for is black. All the images on it are black. We got black fist in there. We got our logo, Black Voters Matter. We got the words love and power on the bus. We got a Sankofa symbol on the bus. A lot of people think it's a heart because the one that we use, the Indinkwa symbol that we use for Sankofa is the one that kind of looks like a heart, but it's actually um, a symbol that means to look back because we very much consider ourselves students of the civil rights movement. So we look back at our history and we try to pull from the best of that history. We're not the ones that you're going to see out there talking about this ain't your, your grandparents' civil rights movement because the, the real deal is without that grandparents' civil rights movement, that we wouldn't be where we are. There's some lessons that we have to take from all that. And so we have the St. Kofa symbol on there. And so that's what we mean uh, when we call it the blackest bus in America. When that, when that bus comes through, you know, there ain't nothing but some black love, black joy and black culture and black power um, that we're going to be talking about. But the thing that's also important is that when that bus comes through, you always, you, you best believe that there's been some work going on before the bus got there and there's was some work that's going to be going on after we leave, right? So the, the bus is not the end-all, be-all. It's an important source of, like, inspiration, right, and, and joy. But it's, it's not just about the work that we do when the bus comes through. It's about the work that we do with those local partners 365 days out of the year. But it's because of that work that we just recently launched and announced that we're going to be doing a freedom ride coming from the South, from Jackson, 
going to D.C. to demand our voting rights, to demand this federal legislation, H.R. 1 and H.R. 4. So that's going to be a eight-day bus tour, like I said, going from the South Ring to D.C., the reverse of the route that they did back in 1961 with the original Freedom Ride. Now, can you tell us what H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 are? Both of them are voting rights um, bills that are pending in Congress. H.R. 1, or the For the People Act, is the one that deals with a range of voter access issues from, you know, voter registration to, you know, early day voting and a whole bunch of other things related to just how we are able to get registered and use the vote, right? So it's trying to expand voter access. It's also got some other pieces in there around campaign finance reform and redistricting and some other things. But it's a broad way of dealing with elections in general. H.R. 4, which is also called the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, right, which was renamed after him after he passed away last year, H.R. 4 is also critically important because what it does is it seeks to restore some powers to the Voting Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, uh, which was gutted when the Supreme Court had a decision that took away a key part of the Voting Rights Act that basically required preclearance for some some of these states. Before they could do any new laws, they had to get it pre-cleared with the, the Justice Department, but that was taken away um, back in 2013. And so what this act would do, H.R. 4, John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, would be to restore some of those powers to the Voting Rights Act and some other things. So those are two critical pieces, one that helps to expand voter access overall, and the other one which prevents some of these states from doing the very things that they're trying to do right now in 47 states sweeping this country with these voter suppression bills. Many of those states would have had to get these things pre-cleared before they could be enacted. Now, I'm assuming you've seen or heard the doomsday stories about what's coming up with the next election. What can we do to get prepared? Or like, what's next? Like, how do we how do we do this? Like, how do we fight again? We just fought. People are like, we're going to lose the House in the upcoming. Or I don't know. What's your... You are closer. I do policing. Mm-hmm. I don't do voting stuff. So, you know, I see the voting stuff on the news and I'm like, okay, hope I can talk to somebody smart about this. Right. And you're the somebody smart. So what comes next? First, you know, we're still pushing back on some of these state laws. Like even in Georgia, where the law was already passed, we're still arguing that there's never been a law passed that we can't get unpassed. And so we're still trying to keep pressure on to get some of these state laws undone. Secondly, like I mentioned with the Freedom Rides, we're trying to push for federal legislation that will try to prevent some of these laws from actually taking effect prior to the midterm elections next year, right? So if we can get this federal legislation passed, then some of these laws we might be able to challenge. The ones that haven't already been passed, we can block. Some of the ones that have passed, we might have grounds on which, again, to get them um, struck down as being unconstitutional. So there's that route. But then there's also the route of, well, okay, if none of that works, then what do we have to do? And the answer is we have to do the same thing that we did in Georgia again after 2018, which is go back and work harder and just outwork them and outorganize and, and reach more of our folks and educate more of our folks to make the connection for more of our folks about why not just getting registered but actually turning out is important. And part of what's going to help us do that is this issue of accountability. Like, what happens after the election? Because we're not just about, you know, rounding up the Negroes for the election and then, you know, after the election's over, we all good. No, we got to hold folks accountable. We got to make sure that folks are delivering. So when we said to people in Georgia, look, if you come out, if you risk your lives in the midst of COVID, if we get these two Senate seats, then we'll be able to get some stimulus money out there. And then it happened and people actually got those checks, right? 
whether it was 1,400 plus 600 or 2,000 or whatever, right? There's a discussion there. But at the end of the day, folks got some checks that they would not have gotten if we didn't win those two seats. That's what we promised them, and that's what happened, right? We also talked about if we get these seats, we're going to get some voting rights done. And so we got to make that happen. But if we can show people at each level, presidential, congressional, local, mayor, city council, if we can hold people accountable and get them to deliver on some of the stuff on which some of these campaigns are run and on which we are organizing the community, then that increases the incentive for folks to turn out because then they can see, look, it's not just a matter of, oh, they just wanted to come out and then they don't do nothing, but that we're actually getting some concrete results. We don't ever tell folks that they're crazy when they say, oh, I'm not into voting because I don't see the results. You know, the, the first thing I say is, you know what, I feel you. I hear you. I see it. Sure, <laughs> right? Um, but let's have a discussion about what it is that we're trying to get done. Like, what, what's your objectives for yourself and your family and your, your community? And then we can have that dialogue from there. But at the end of the day, the answer to your question, what do we do now? is by doing those other steps that I mentioned, trying to fight these bills, trying to overturn these bills, and at the end of the day, doing the work to get more people involved. If they want to tell us that we can't give out food and water on the lines at the polling places in Georgia, then we got to figure out another way to motivate our folks and, and to help them to stay online and, and to help them to have the food and water. Maybe we're going to do it where before they even get to the line, we're giving them some bags of food and water, right? But at the end of the day, we are going to outwork them, and we're going to um, not allow them to take us back to Jim Crow 2.0. Well, we appreciate you coming on the pod. We consider you a friend of the pod. I can't wait to have you back. Thank you. Looking forward to, to hearing it, and, and hope to have you on mine one day soon. Let's do it. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Shinyangwe.